I just returned from an extended long weekend in the Okanagan Valley. It's our best-known wine region here in British Columbia. What a fantastic weekend, if a little hot. We were lucky to sample some very tasty Canadian wines and some delicious food. And we weren't alone. The whole valley was booming. People are clearly ready to get back to the food and wine scene. And this weekend getaway had me thinking about a couple of issues that I've wondered about for some time. Is the culinary industry ready for the pent-up demand about to be unleashed? Can restaurants possibly hire enough line cooks and other staff to meet the demand? It seems to me that line cooks are critical, and they're increasingly tough to find. And why is it that I see so many amazing Canadian wines in small places in BC, but not when I'm dining out in my beloved Las Vegas? or in New York, or Portland, or San Francisco. So this week, as we all get closer to visiting restaurants the way we used to, let's talk about line cooks, and about Canadian wine. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Thank you for joining me. It's Friday once again. We are knock on wood out of the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, and here we are back on the Chef Timoni podcast. If this show is new to you, welcome. Chef Timoni is a podcast about food. I've worked as both a lawyer and as a professional cook over the years, and Chef Timoni is my way of staying in touch with the culinary scene now that I'm back to full-time lawyer life. My guests on Chef Timoni are most often chefs and food-loving lawyers, and today, well, I don't want to say too much about today, not quite yet. Instead, a little bit of housekeeping before we get to the show. With summer here, we are getting closer and closer to the end of season four of the show. It's going to wrap soon, likely after one more full episode, but keep an eye on social media and you'll know what's what when your hardworking Chef Timoni production team does. And over the break between seasons four and five, who knows, there just might be a snapshot episode or two, all to be revealed, but the upshot is, expect a break between seasons soon, and I'll see you again sometime in the fall this year for season five. Also, I often say this at the end of the show, but let's move it up front today. Ratings and reviews of the show really help other people to discover Chef Demoni, and it would mean a lot if you take the time to write a quick review of the podcast. Apple Podcasts is a great place to do that, and it's pretty straightforward. When you're looking at Chef Demoni and its episodes within the podcast app, scroll down until you see Ratings and Reviews. There you will see five stars in a row next to the words Tap to Rate. That is super easy. If you're loving the show, tap on the star on the far right, and boom, you have left a five-star rating. Scroll down a little further, and you'll see the words Write a Review. Click there and type away. It takes at least a few days for the reviews to show up in Apple Podcasts, so don't worry if you don't see it right away. And that's it. Thank you for considering, and big thanks to those who take the time to leave a rating and review. As I say, it means a lot. Okay, today's show. I'm delighted to bring you a talk with Chef Raymond DeLucci. Ray is from Niagara Falls, New York. He's a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. He's already got amazing experience in a number of roles in the culinary world at the age of 23. And he is the driving force behind a wonderful platform that I say you should really check out. It's called Line Cook Thoughts. 
Line Cook Thoughts is a podcast, it's on Instagram, it's a website and a blog, and really more than anything, it's a wonderful community that serves line cooks, of course, but also the wider culinary world. Ray has got wisdom beyond his years, and I think he is creating an important space for people in the culinary industry to connect and to share their experiences. As you'll hear, Anthony Bourdain was an inspiration for Line Cook Thoughts, and that reminds me of Two Sharp Chefs, the podcast by Lorraine Moss and Louis Victa, who have also been guests here. They were also inspired by Bourdain. None of these chefs is claiming to be taking Bourdain's place, but they are stepping in to help fill the void that was created by his death. Ray and I talked today about some common challenges that line cooks face, including working to the point of exhaustion and, and feeling pressure to work the line instead of exploring other roles in the industry. Ray really encourages cooks to be open to change and to take care of themselves, and he thinks that change is starting to happen in the industry. I think initiatives like Line Cook Thoughts are a big part of the positive changes, so Ray, good on you for doing what you do. Ray also has some thoughts for people outside the industry. He's got a great tip, which is to spend just 20 minutes reading about just one issue in the culinary world. That could be, as an example, the crisis around how undocumented workers are treated in the industry. So if you take 20 minutes to learn about the industry, that will help develop some empathy, and I think it's great advice. Ray also gives us some fantastic cooking tips toward the end of the interview, including some really quick weeknight options. You'll definitely want to hear those. And I unfairly put Ray on the spot, asking him to speak on behalf of all Americans as to why we don't see more Canadian wines on U.S. wine lists. Ray and I have a great talk around this issue and around emerging wine regions generally. And you know, Chef Timoni often has lawyer guests along with the chef, so who can say? Perhaps we'll be lucky enough to have a lawyer chime in, hopefully someone who can talk about this Canadian wine issue. In any event, let's get right to the episode. Here is my talk with Ray DeLucci of Line Cook Thoughts. Good morning, Ray, from Whistler to Maryland. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for being on Chef Demoni. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, we connected on Instagram. I follow your account, Line Cook Thoughts, and I've got a lot of questions about your platform. But before we get there, please tell us about your background in the food world. Maybe start with early memories of cooking, uh, some early inspirations. What got you into cooking? Uh, yeah, I started cooking when I was 15. I started at a Wendy's. I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. So I uh, started cooking at 15 as a dishwasher at Wendy's, worked my way up to sandwich builder. But I didn't start professional restaurants until I was 17. It was after I graduated high school. I had a mentor. His name is Cody, who got me my first job at like a hotel restaurant. And I really like loved working there. And at the time, well, I went to the Culinary Institute of America. And this was like my first experience before going to school, working in a professional restaurant. So I worked there, uh, went to school, did four years. Uh, well, did a four-year program, but it's really like two and a half uh, years actually like there, or like three and a half years. Did business management um, with a concentration in farm-to-table studies had a great time there. And I've worked in fine dining. I got to work uh, go cook at the James Beard house with my other mentor, Ross. Um, I worked in food management. And so, yeah, that's basically kind of my background. T tell us a little more about the CIA. I find that so, so interesting because I think I, I think I have this right. There's an East Coast campus and a West Coast, right? There's one in Napa, I think, or close to Napa. And then yeah. one in somewhere in New York. But anyway, tell us a bit more about that. I'm, I'm jealous for somebody who's gone to what I think is one of the you know most highly regarded cooking schools out there. Yeah, um, it was great. I mean, so you're right. There's a 
campus in Hudson Valley in Hyde Park, New York, which is uh, our... In 45 minutes, hour and a half north of New York City. People call it upstate, but when you're from Niagara Falls or Buffalo, New York, it's not really upstate at all. Um, uh, there's a campus there and there's a campus in Napa. I was fortunate enough to go uh, be at both of them for eight semesters. I was in Hyde Park. And then my last semester is I, I got to go out to California and do the farm to table concentration. But yeah, your first two years, you're learning the basics. You're learning how to cook. You're learning stocks, sauces, all the way up to like restaurant level experience. And then my second two years was mainly focused on a bachelor's degree focusing on business management, and then uh, obviously the concentration in Napa. So, I mean, CIA is great. It's a lot of work, but definitely, you know, a good foundation starter. Absolutely. Now, here, I'm going to studiously avoid asking you this question because I think I know it would drive you crazy like it drives a lot of chefs crazy. But I am going to ask you, because I think it might be helpful for people to hear, why does this question drive cooks and chefs crazy? And the question is, what is your favorite thing to cook? Yeah, it's that, I mean, I literally just did a video on this where I was like, what is your favorite thing to cook? And I was pouring a bowl of cereal. Um, <laughs> That's what inspired drives, my question. I saw that. Yeah, I think it drives like when people ask me, it's not like, you know, I get mad at them. It's like understandable, but it's like, I'm trying to, let me think. Let me think of it because there's so much that you like cooking. And I feel like if you really like cooking, you always like to cook new things. So, yes, like, of, like I'll always say pasta. Like pasta is my favorite thing to make. It's just because I grew up in an Italian-American family that never made fresh pasta. And so for me, I always wanted that. And so I learned how to make fresh pasta. And that, so that's like my go-to thing to make on days off. But it's just, it's slightly annoying because there's so much that we do cook and there's so much that we learn. And it's like asking a painter their favorite color. It's like, there's just so many different things for different environments. And it's like, you know, it's just a hard, it's just a hard question to answer. A better question, I think, would be like, what are you what food are you interested in cooking right now or what's really like right. captured your attention i think that's right and and the i think the painter analogy is a great one like people need to or would benefit by putting some limits on this question yeah yeah okay so i'm going to here's another question inspired by a post of yours that i saw and i think this is a much better question and it's one you've asked so i'm going uh, of others so i want to ask it of you what's the first thing that you cooked that showed you that this whole thing could be more than just food? The first thing I cooked, so when I was growing up, I obviously like loved Food Network, Emerald, everyone on Food Network. And I started to get an interest in it. I never really like knew I wanted to be a chef until like high school. When I was growing up, I was like really into cooking. Uh, I remember, uh, I don't know if you remember the game console in Nintendo DS, but they came out with like a video game. It's like it called... Uh, personal trainer cooking that I had to have that. Um, but my mom taught me, taught me how to make scrambled eggs when I was young. And I remember like just learning how to make scrambled eggs and being like, you know, just knowing how to cook something made me feel so self-sufficient and independent. And I remember like I would always garnish it with dried parsley and Parmesan cheese. And I would think that was like the greatest thing and that I was like the most fancy chef. So definitely scrambled eggs. I love it. And then, you know what? I think eggs are, that's a great answer because they're really one of these foundational things, right? So when you're six years old and you can scramble eggs and you feel like the world's greatest chef, that's a wonderful thing. And then they can just carry with you through your whole career, right? They do so many things. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. get to, let's get to your platform, Ray. And this is a platform that I know is reaching a lot of cooks, a lot of people generally. It's called Line Cook Thoughts. Who are you trying to reach with Line Cook Thoughts? Who are you trying to help? What are you trying to do with this platform? Yeah, uh, so I started this platform when I was a line cook. Um, since then, I've had a couple different roles. But basically, I started it because, 
well, a couple of reasons. When Anthony Bourdain uh, passed away, obviously, like that was a tremendous loss for having a voice for cooks. Uh, I don't like consider myself like Anthony Bourdain, but there definitely is like that reason. Like, hey, like someone needs to speak for the people in the industry. But besides that, I just wanted a place where people could share their thoughts and ideas on food. I think uh, the food industry can be very like strict in its and how it operates, and very like just there's a lot of friction when change needs to happen, and so. I just wanted to make a platform that would speak to cooks on that level and allow them to share thoughts and ideas and needs for the future. So my audience is really just like people in the food service industry. It's not just cooks. It's, you know, sommeliers, it's restaurant owners, it's dishwashers, it's everyone really in food. But the reason it's called Line Cook Thoughts is that we've, if you've ever cooked and you hold a position elsewhere in the food industry, you were all, you, everyone who's cooked has started out as a line cook or equate that to like a waiter or server and, so that's kind of the idea, like just remembering that like no one's too big to be able to have these discussions and kind of think of ways to be better. So one of the ideas I know you've explored, I'd love to get your thoughts on it today is people feeling almost guilty or something about doing something other than working the line, like taking on another role in the in the hospitality industry other than hardcore saute or, you know, whatever it is on the line. Why do you think that is? And, and is that changing? Yes, I think it is changing. I think that it is, is because our like restaurant culture is very, uh, there's a lot of camaraderie. And I think that a lot of times, you know, I, that's why I started cooking. I just loved working on the line and like at the end of the shift, just like hanging out back with the cooks while, you know, things kind of simmer down and just chatting about the service. And there's that camaraderie and there's that, you know, usually most people have a chef they look up to. Um, obviously, like when you go into cooking, you tend to find leaders that can be helpful. Obviously, there's poor leadership, but so, some people have good leadership. And so I feel like there's just an expectation you don't want to let people down. You don't want to like let others down. And obviously, there's always, I mean, I don't care what anyone says, everyone has kind of receptor to how others will view what they do. Some are better at not caring about that than others, but I think we all have that in us. And with restaurants, it's like you, you see it as such a different thing than everything else in the world that leaving it can kind of be hard. I was lucky enough to have a mentor who was like, I'm happy with whatever you do as long as you try your best and be successful. And so that really helped me out. But I deal with that a long time. Like, am I like, you know, we think of it as like selling out or making decisions that, that make us look weaker. But really, it's like, for me, at least, it's like, you need to make decisions that are best for you that promote your growth and that give you a healthy lifestyle. Like, I, I really think what COVID taught us is that, this want and urge to just destroy ourselves and, and the mission of cooking is really unhealthy and it, it can lead to a very like just poor way of living. And if, you know, sometimes it leads to greatness and success. And so I won't knock anyone's hustle on that, but like I'd rather spend some of my time working and cooking and then some of my time like working on line cook thoughts and some of my time walking my dog and leading a healthier lifestyle. So um, yeah, that's kind of the point. Is the industry changing? I, I think it is from other chefs I've spoken to, but there, and, and I think you're right, maybe COVID has been a real watershed moment for the industry and, and a wake-up call and a, and a way to think about things differently. But certainly when I dipped my toe in the industry, and I see a lot of parallels between cooking and law, which is the other industry I've worked in, where there's this weird kind of badge of honor of, you know, I've worked 18-hour days and I did that for five years or 10 years or whatever when I was starting out. And so that's, that is what you have to do. That's the expectation. Are younger cooks that you're talking to, are they coming in with a different attitude now? 
I would think so. I mean, there's always going to be people who come in and just want to work. I mean, if you love working and you love, and like you just want to like that's the beauty of this industry. Like, I feel like at least for me, like when I was like coming in, I just wanted to be good at something and I wanted to prove myself to someone. And so like, there's nothing wrong with that. But I do see from like the younger, I don't want to say younger, like I'm 23. So like my peers and people younger than me, it's like there's a definitely a realization that like this lifestyle of like suffering on the line for 30 years in hopes of attaining validation from an outside rating system is like really, I don't know when you say it like that, doesn't that sound kind of crazy? And so I think that's (laughs) where, so maybe that's where people are coming from and not to knock any rating system. That's like, that's not my goal, but my goal is to kind of just share my thought process. And like, I I had this like realization that like my entire career goal was to, cook and be good at cooking and serve people but ultimately to hopefully one day have one organization or group of people tell me I'm good and I don't think that's a good framework and I think that can lead to a lot of just poor lifestyle decisions and choices so yeah and we certainly see a lot of that in the industry don't we we see you know there's mental health issues there's addiction issues and I think that's Mm -hmm. all part and parcel with what have been the demands or the expectations another chef I spoke to this just popped into my head when you were giving your answer was saying that that Michelin really, when you think about it, and I, and I think Michelin is probably regarded as the the biggest, the 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 main rating agency. Um, I would say so. It, yeah, and it was it was uh, the guide came out originally because Michelin is a tire company. So if people mm-hmm. are driving around to more restaurants, they're going to sell more tires, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's what it is. So why do we build it up into this career defining ranking? Yeah, I I totally agree and. Like I said, it's not to knock anyone wanting that. Like, there's like, I mean, you look at chefs like Grant Atkins who overcomes so much and like still puts out amazing food. And I, you know, the group, the Alenia group does a lot of great work. And um, there's definitely like tons of chefs that are doing great work. What I, my problem is that people get stuck in a box thinking that's the only thing they can do. And if they don't do that, then they're not worthwhile in the industry and their career doesn't matter. And that's so far from the truth. There's so many different things besides just restaurant cooking in general. So, I think that's where I get caught up on it. That's where I kind of have like an issue with it is it's not like the whole, like for me, it's no longer the Holy grail. And I think having other options is always a good idea. Is that part of the reason Ray, that it's important for you to share stories of other cooks and chefs? Because I noticed that's a big part of your platform. It's not, it's not Ray preaching, you know, these are my thoughts, although you certainly share your insights, which is great. But it seems to me that a big part of the platform is getting other people's stories out into the world. Yeah. I mean, so that's really is a reason. Like I love interviewing people. I love talking to people. Um, I'm excited for like the next phase of line cook thoughts, which is going to be video interviews. Cause it's just going to be more content elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, when you're 21 and want to like, but, and you see something in the industry, like when I started, I was 21 years old and I saw like something in the industry that I didn't like. Yeah. It's kind of hard because like I said, our industry is very high. Like, you know, there's a lot of hierarchy. There's a lot of like, you know, you tradition. Need it, like, tradition and like, I'm well aware of that, but I wanted to just interview people, cooks, people outside of restaurants. Like I've had everyone from like food media to like restaurant recipe development. Like I've had like really everyone on that covers food. And like, for me, that's important because it's not me saying like, Hey, you should do this. It's me sharing stories of people that have done different paths besides food. And yes, of course I've had restaurant people on too, but that's why the podcast for me is important. Of course, I share insights and I share ideas and I'm open to being my ideas changing and I'm open to them evolving. But like, yeah, that's a big reason why I do have so many people on. It's because 
I need I want people to know that there's more than just cooking out there. So is there one or two points or highlights that you can point to, like something that you've learned from the cooks that you've interviewed or from the industry people? Is there is there a standout lesson there? Yeah, uh, definitely. There's a running theme that people start in the industry very bullish on working hard and giving it their all as everyone should. Like I work tremendously hard, but to the point of exhaustion and not taking care of yourself. And then there's a lot of times regret after that. And maybe there was a smarter way of getting to where they wanted to be. And so there's that theme. And then there's also the theme of getting into the industry. And like we've been talking about, just thinking you're only good at sauteing a vegetable or searing a steak. And, you know, some people I've had on, they're like, I wish I would have started doing what I do now sooner because this is what I'm really passionate about. So this idea of being open to change and also the idea of taking care of ourselves. Like I know there's going to be someone listening to this that's going to be like 17 or 18 or like just new to the industry. And they're going to be like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, you know, we have to like work hard. And I'm telling you, like, I've been in the same shoes. I've been in the same boat. And it's better to have a healthy lifestyle outside of all of that. Uh, great thought. Great thought. And I couldn't agree more. Ray, I want to get your thoughts on what we, I'm pointing to myself as a consumer, can or should do. Like the, the hospitality industry is, to state the obvious, very customer focused, and it should be. And there's a whole lot of attention on what can restaurants, what can cooks, what can servers, what can the industry do for me, the consumer. But I've got two questions. I think that's as that is fine as far as it goes. And as I say, it's important. But what can we, again, I'm pointing at me, the consumer, do for the industry? Like assuming that I love restaurants, which I do, and I want to keep going out and having great experiences, is there something I should be doing other than just showing up and expecting greatness? I would, the two things I would point to is A, being open to pay more. You know, the restaurant industry runs on a lot of times people being paid very low wages. And so, before you complain about the price of something, not you, but like just in general, um, before like, I would just say that like it costs a lot more financially, mentally, well-being wise than maybe the general consumer thinks. And I also would say like, go read articles, um, just look up like problems with cooks or problems with the food industry and read something that isn't, you know, the latest article on why, I don't know, a new restaurant is so good. Like, Go read about why, what cooks are talking about, or what issues maybe restaurants are struggling with, like the undocumented worker crisis that we have in restaurants, or you know, in regards to like them not being taken care of and them not being fully like you know cared for in our space, and like people being worked to the bone, and obviously all the other issues that can come with restaurants, and just being educated that. And yes, of course, I think it's unrealistic to have a consumer who's not about food just like be an expert. But to just spend maybe like 20 minutes reading about one issue can give some empathy and insight as to how maybe it's not like how hard it could be for some people in the industry. It's a great answer. And and you may have already in part answered my next question, which is what can we as consumers do selfishly for ourselves? So I think reading and, and becoming educated, it's good because that might help the industry generally, but it also gives me more context, right? When I go to yeah. that restaurant and it's going to help me enjoy the experience. Anything else I can do uh, on my own to to make the experience of, of dining better, more complete? I would just say be patient and be kind to the people serving you. You know, just that empathy piece. I think we lack that a lot um, in regards to food and we have a general misunderstanding of what food is and just being patient and being empathetic. Of course, like things happen in restaurants and maybe you get served something where you're allergic and like, that's like a big deal, obviously, but just treating this 
treating the service staff as if, like, if you were to go to, I don't know, maybe, I mean, yeah, there's crappy people out there, but like, if you were to go to, let's say, a car dealership, you would treat the car dealer with respect because, you know, that's their job. I feel like the service industry, it's lost some people that, like, this is someone actually working. And yes, they're serving you, but it's still a job where they should be respected. And so I think that would be the biggest thing is just being patient and empathetic to the workers. And it seems like obviously you are because you do this podcast. But I would also say that just like being open to being wrong about your assumptions of food and just like being open to trying new things is a big thing because trying different um, ingredients or trying like, like, I don't know, like for me, ramen should be way more expensive than it is. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of dedication to it. Yeah, it's like you go and it's like $15 for a bowl. And so I feel like we were more educated in regards to like other cultures and how they make food and how much work goes into it. We would, I would hope, price things a little differently. So just education, empathy on the food industry. Those are all great points. And I, I can speak to that with some personal experience. When I started staging, uh, this is years ago, and I was in my late 30s at the time, which makes me even further from 23 now. I, but I was working with with cooks who were 23 and younger, right? And I was and so grateful I did it because I was astounded by how much these people knew at such a young age, right? But when people come into the industry and start working at 16, 17, by the time you're 23, you've got a whole lot of experience under your belt. So I think people should go. I think you you make an excellent point, which is go in there, be patient, be empathetic, but be curious and be open to learning from somebody who might be 25 years younger than you right because they actually do know more about this stuff yeah i always found it interesting because like you look at like the tech world and you see like tech ceos and you see like people who are super young building these million billion dollar companies and we praise that but in the restaurant industry being young can almost be like a a bad thing it can hold you back from things because it's not seen like that for a lot of people you need to like pay your dues or whatnot and i think that holds us back a lot too is the whole age gap thing of course I'm not going to know maybe as much as someone who's been running a restaurant for 20 years, but it doesn't mean that there's not those outliers. And I don't see myself as an outlier. I don't want to like be like that, but there's definitely a lot of young talent that could be doing a lot more in the industry if given the chance. Excellent point. Okay, Ray, I'm going to ask you a question to to have you speak on behalf of all Americans here. That's not <laughs> that's not entirely fair, but here's my question. When I'm dining out in the U.S., so that's most often for me in Las Vegas and New York, but also Portland, Seattle, San Francisco. I love to look at the wine lists and see what the Canadian wine offerings are. And usually they're very limited. And so my question, like ice wine, I see quite Mm. commonly. What, if anything, and and the answer may be not much or occasional bottle of ice wine. What, what do you see of the Canadian wine production in the U S food scene? I, so I am not too versed with wine. I do know, but I did grow up in at the Canadian border. So right. I, you know, I think that like I like Canadian wine, and I, but I'll say like when you go out to eat, you're probably going to get something more so from France or whatnot because just much, like it's all tied to like this idea of like culture or obviously our country, America too. But you know, France is such an established place, and so I think generally consumers are drawn to the average consumer would be, might be drawn to more French. Italian, American wines. I can say though that my favorite wine, while it's not in Canada, like it is in the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, is um, the Riesling from uh, Dr. Constantine Frank's Franks. I don't know how to say it. Uh, vineyard. That's like my favorite wine. Is that Riesling uh, that they produce? And so um, I like that a lot because it's dry, it's crisp, and it's like close to Canada. So I guess maybe that helps. <laughs> that, but, um, yeah, that that does help. Yeah, we we will take it. Yeah. Well, I think but I, I think, think that's any- why though, because of like yeah. the because like much like. 
how popular Italian food is or how you would go out to a French fine dining restaurant. I just think it's so ingrained. And, you know, I would like to try more Canadian wines. I don't go out and drink wine as much, but, you know, I think that would be a reason why you don't see it as much. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I think anything that highlights or starts to showcase regions like the Finger Lakes uh, district that you're talking about is good, right? Because people Mm -hmm. five, 10 years ago, probably even now wouldn't necessarily think, oh, upstate New York, that's a wine producing region. Yes. But yeah, but like, yeah, but like Canada, of course it is. Just a couple more questions. I love to share cooking tips on Chef Demoni and obviously when I'm talking to chefs, I love to get their thoughts. So what I'd love you to comment on, Ray, is something that you can put together really quickly on a weeknight. So we won't even call it a recipe, something that you, and this could be a technique, a dish, whatever you like, something you can describe in 30 seconds or so that people can put together in 15 minutes on a, on a Tuesday night and, and have something delicious. Yeah, I've actually been making, I cook for myself every night different meals. So I, I have a couple of quick things. I think couscous is very underrated. Couscous is for, you can find a box, there's like boxes of couscous that cook in five minutes. Really, you just bring water to a boil, you dump in the couscous. You have to measure the water, obviously. Um, But if you you have an Aldi near you or like a, I don't know, like those are all uh, New York, well, Tops is a New York based thing. Um, Let's see, Whole Foods. Go buy a box of couscous and it's, you just boil it, stir it in, and then you like let it sit and it just like goes. And it's like a, grain that you can it's a little pasta you can have so i think like couscous is underrated but i like to make this dish i usually make it around once a week where i just have have cannellini beans um so i'll sweat onions i'll open the can of beans and i'll put those in with like some chicken stock i'll I'll sweat some garlic too but i'll stew it with like tomatoes basil and just kind of have this like bean dish it's just like cannellini beans i add red pepper flakes parmesan cheese and that can be a base i'll put that with salmon you can put that with like italian sausage and so that's kind of what I like is like that. So stuff like that that can be used elsewhere. I love that. It comes together quickly and it's you can change it up, right? You can change the kind of beans. You can, as you say, change the side that it goes to That's or the, the, the protein it goes with or even have it on, on its own with a little crusty bread. That sounds good, too. Yeah. I'd also say that, I mean, I can make fresh pasta very quickly now because I've done it. But fresh pasta is a lot can be once you get the hang of it, it can be a lot easier than you think and actually can be a pretty like delicious meal that. Yes, it takes a little bit more time, but it's not as difficult as people think. So I would urge everyone to make some fresh pasta. Agreed. And do you have uh, one of the hand crank pasta rollers? Like, do you just yep. Gr- uh, yeah, run it through there and, and, and then chop it into fettuccine or, or whatever you're doing? Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Or like, sometimes I don't even need that. I'll just roll it out and cut it into like whatever, like I'll cut it into strips or rectangles and then make shapes that I want. Yeah, endlessly adaptable. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Ray, listen, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got a lot of different touch points for Line Cook Thoughts. I'll put links in the show notes. If somebody just wants to dip their toe into your content, where where should they go? Yeah, if you're looking for social media, or Instagram, at Line Cook Thoughts is definitely the biggest one. I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok, which the TikTok isn't too big, but starting out there. Podcast, Apple, Spotify, you can look up Line Cook Thoughts. Go to linecookthoughts.com and you can read our blogs. We have guest blogs, blogs that I've written. And yeah, that's uh, just like looking up Line Cook Thoughts on any app or media platform or even just typing it into Google, uh, you'll find it. That's terrific. Ray, thanks again. Really appreciate you stopping by. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Approach the bench. It's time for Sidebar on Chef Demoni. 
Tanya, I am so happy that we are doing our second sidebar. Thank you for coming back and, and thanks for joining in this discussion. I'm really looking forward to it all about Canadian wines abroad. Hi, Graham. I'm so delighted to be back. It's always great to discuss things wine with you. Thank you for being here. You, you've heard my chat with Ray DeLucci from Line Cook Thoughts. And, and I think Ray's experience is probably quite representative of most food-loving people outside of Canada, which is to say that they just don't see, they just are not exposed to many Canadian wines. Uh, am I right on that? Well, yeah, generally speaking, yes, we are making some great wine here, but a lot of it doesn't hit tables or wine lists outside of Canada, let alone our own provinces. Why is this? Well, let's have a look at this from altitude. First of all, production levels. Compared to other wine producing nations, we just don't make that much wine. Just by way of example, there are about 11,000 acres under vine in the Okanagan Valley. Now that, as you know, is British Columbia's largest wine region, both in terms of geographic size and production. Let's compare that to a few other New World regions. Napa Valley, which you know is very small but mighty, has about 44,000 acres under vine. Oregon State, 37,000 acres under vine. Washington State, 60,000 plus acres under vine. Australia, as a nation, 300,000 plus acres under vine. And Mendoza, which is just, you know, a part of Argentina, 368,000 acres under vine. So you get the idea here. We are making some great juice, but it's a pretty small amount in global terms. Um, We also have what I'll call allocation issues. So flowing from that in terms of production levels, one of the current realities facing our producers, especially the smaller ones, is just how to allocate their stock. That is how to deal with everyone who wants a piece of them. Let's use our (laughs) province of BC as an example. So over, well over 80% of the wine produced here is consumed in our province. The average BC winery sells about 5,000 cases a year, and that is skewed and takes into account the really large, the big players who make considerably more than that. So most of our wine production right now here in BC is going to meet local demand. Yes, there has been an increasing interest and focus on BC wine within our province over the recent years. You know, you will have seen this on wine lists and, and in wine stores. This has been amplified during the time of COVID. You know, you will have seen this in the foodie scene, but there has been a strong movement and even more so to support local products and businesses, both in terms of what we purchase, but also going out to visit those businesses and taste their wines on site. You know, obviously when protocols allow um, and it's been safe to do so. What's also happened during the time of COVID is a lot more people have discovered the world of DTC, that is direct to consumer. They've discovered that BC wineries, um, I'm talking again about the context of our province here, but you know, this will be in other places as well, uh, are able to ship directly to uh, consumer doorsteps. So, you know, in the last year or so, BC producers, their online presence, their wine club sales, their seller door sales went up exponentially. This really helped them when there was a contraction at the same time in other distribution channels, namely restaurants, you know, restaurants shut or their businesses were limited in many ways. So what I'm hearing now from many BC producers is that they're needing to decide exactly how to allocate, you know, that relatively small production amount, which I mentioned earlier, to meet the interest and demands of new customers that they've gained loyal wine club members and BC restaurants and bars that are coming back online. 
just imagine what that feels like. If you're a producer and you're making only, say, a couple thousands of cases a year, you want to keep everyone happy, you want to sell wine, and you also want to get some great exposure. <laughs> exactly. Wow. <laughs> There's, yeah, so many demands on the same relatively few cases. And that comparison to Mendoza and Argentina is just, wow, that is an eye-opener. We are really, really tiny, aren't we? We are tiny, but we are we are mighty too. Um, yes. <laughs> and we've got a lot, of go- lot going on here and um, so much growth on so many aspects, which, which I'll get to. But just getting back to that aspect about the allocation, You know, there are also the financial aspects as well. So just getting back to that point I made about how to get the balance and how to get how to get your product to your people. Part of that is exposure and marketing. So getting back to your question at the beginning and getting back to your discussion with Ray, getting product abroad also means things like, you know, in addition to making a great product, paying for marketing, getting an agent in various jurisdictions, going to wine shows and so on. For many local producers, and many of them are small family businesses, their energy and resources are tied up in meeting local demand and local interest, you know, along the lines I've just discussed. But larger and more established players have been really getting out there and selling to other places. And there's also been some coordinated and collective team effort amongst wineries to do this in a concerted fashion. Well, that certainly strikes me as encouraging news. Um, I always like to hear of smaller players, you know, kind of tackling the market in creative ways. What does that look like on the ground and, and who's been involved in that effort? Well, there have been a variety of players in a variety of ways over the past number of years. But just here are a few examples. So one would be the Federal Trade Commission and small groupings of Canadian producers getting together and going together to Canada House in London to show some of our wines there to the British and the international wine scene. London is one of the global wine hubs. This has been going on for a couple of years now, and you know, other than last year, but it's been to great success on many fronts. And this has been a big part of getting Canadian wine onto the global wine map. Just sticking with the UK for a moment, another example is Selfridges in London recently showcased some up-and-coming, what they call up-and-coming up and coming Canadian wine in their on-site wine bar and restaurant. And I've also seen Canadian wine pop up on online store uh, platforms for other UK retailers. There have also been wineries that have engaged agents in London to assist with, with distribution and go to clubs like in Pall Mall, very famous wine club. But getting back to raise comments on the U.S. scene, we're making some inroads there, too. Some of our premium BC wineries have their own framework in place to sell to U.S. purchasers. And you can find links on their website explaining how to do that and which wines are available in that way. There are also wineries which have independently have engaged agents in certain U.S. states to assist with distribution there. And another uh, platform is a relatively new player on the U.S. side of things, Cascadia Wine Merchants with a K. Um, Cascadia is based in San Francisco and imports select BC wines into the U.S., including really small lot niche producers. And so U.S.-based purchasers can go onto their platform and order the wines directly from that importer and Cascadia will ship to the purchaser's door. And not all, but many of the U.S. states. So I've had a number of friends, contacts and clients who have used this service in the last year 
to buy wine for themselves um, if they reside in the U.S. or to gift wine, BC wine as an example, to U.S.-based recipients. This has been fantastic for me when I've had friends in the U.S. and Manhattan, for example, or in California say, hey, T, we'd love to try some BC wine. What's the fastest, best way we can get our hands on a bottle? Well, here's an sure. Here's an example. I guess, would that work as a Canadian if I wanted to send a gift to somebody in the U.S. and say, hey, try a bottle of this Canadian um, wine? Yes, wonder if it would work that way. In that case, um, and there may be other players, you know, in, in Canada doing this as well, but I just mentioned them because uh, I've been dealing with them a lot recently on some specific BC wine projects. But yes, you know, in that case, you can contact them and uh, arrange for a purchase and they'll have it delivered um, there because they are an importer and they're based in the U.S. and they've gone through all of you know the steps that they need to take in order to do that wonderful it's so interesting to hear because i've i've often thought i would love to expose u.s friends to what we do in canada and that may be a way a really convenient way to do it so tanya can you give us some examples i'm curious what at least some of the wines available in the u.s through this new platform are can you can you give us a few names well there are, well, there are a couple of different ways, as I mentioned, there are, you know, the platform of going through an importer, there's also agents who are distributing as well as wineries that will sell to direct to US consumers. Um, and also, as I mentioned before, there's the UK market as well. But wineries in general terms, and I'll just speak about BC again for the moment, although, you know, obviously, I don't mean to exclude any other Canadian wineries. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, over the past while, in general terms, examples of some wineries that you may have heard of that have been active and instrumental in the push to get our wine out on the global map include Mission Hill, and related wineries and that family, Painted Rock, Poplar Grove, Haywire and Okanagan Crush Pad, Meyer Family Wine, Foxtrot, and Summerhill. And that, that list is growing. There are more wines than that available in the U.S., but those have been uh, examples of some of the players who have been involved in some of these campaigns. You know what I'm thinking is is how this point relates to one that Ray made. And I thought he struck on a really interesting point with his comments about the Riesling that he likes that comes from the Finger Lakes district in upstate New York. And and what I took from that is that we can all benefit from keeping an open mind about wines and wineries and what we might think of as an emerging region now could well be the next, you know, blockbuster appellation. I think of that whole bottle shock story with the, you know, the Napa Valley wines upending the French wines in a competition. But anyway, all of that to say, do you think there's a growing interest in wines from smaller regions generally from these? And it sounds like there is in London, from what you're telling me, and uh, presumably in other areas, these sort of niche wineries. So does that, how big is that interest? I'm sure it exists. And can that change taking place in consumer interest benefit Canadian producers? I think it can, but I'd love your comments on that. Absolutely. Some of the great validation and what I'll call free marketing we have right now is the increased global attention we're getting from international wine experts, wine writers, and travelers. People are looking for the next cool or up-and-coming wine region. We fit that bill. Here are just a few examples. One, Decanter Magazine, one of the world's leading and most respected wine magazines. Just last year, in the past year, Painted Rocks um, flagship red icon red blend was one of Decanter's wine of the year picks, that with a few others. Several other Canadian wines have been showcased and rated very highly in Decanter. And really recently, wine writer and judge 
and Italian wine expert, Michaela Morris, who's based in Vancouver, wrote an article in Decanter identifying top Canadian Rieslings. So there you go, Ray. <laughs> I'll send that one to you. Yes, um, he's got a few more to try. <laughs> there's also been a pickup of the Canadian wine scene in American-based magazines, including Wine Spectator and Wine Enthusiast. Again, international wine luminaries like Jancis Robinson and Stephen Spurrier, who sadly passed away recently, have visited the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia and written about it as a place to watch and rated our wines here very highly. Stephen Spurrier was the organizer of the famed blind wine tasting between the Napa and the French wines, which you alluded to earlier. Okay, okay. Yeah, and Jancis Robinson, um, who's a leading wine figure in the world, has likened the pioneering spirit in our BC wine scene to what Napa Valley looked like in the 1980s. You know, we hear this from travelers and collectors, too, who come through and see what's going on and feel the pioneering spirit here as a young industry and, and the collaboration between producers, especially small ones. Um, you know, but just back to Ray for a moment in his comment, he mentioned... Um, I recall that in the U.S., many of the wine lists there lean heavily towards U.S. wine. And then, you know, generally speaking, more of the picks from traditional European producers. As I understand it, in the U.S., 80% of the domestic market share in wine consumption there is for U.S. products. You know, I expect that percentage will shift as more U.S. consumers explore other regions. But you get the idea. And just on that travel and lifestyle point I mentioned in terms of comparing jurisdictions. In the past few years, we've seen really great coverage in publications like the New York, New York Times, the Travel Section, the Letter from Canada Section, Wine and Food Magazine, Bon Appetit, Wine Folly, the list goes on. I feel this last point is important because I feel that the real growth potential here for us is around enotourism and or culinary adventure tourism. You know, we have really a relatively small production amount to offer globally, but we have a massive amount to offer on the tourism side of things in terms of the scope of our natural beauty, the wide open spaces, a diversity of tasting room experiences, and a really cool foodie scene. So yes, bottom line, I feel that all of this is really going to help Canadian wine producers. Those are some great points. And and the last one, it's so interesting. And I, I'm thinking I've maybe been thinking about this whole question backwards in a way, which is to say, I've been wondering how Canadian producers can get more of their wines into foreign markets. But to your point, we've got such a limited supply here and there's already so much demand. So the better approach, or, or at least another approach would be to leverage those amazing wines and the, and as you say, the beautiful places where they're grown to bring more people here into Canada to check out what we've going on, check out what we've got going on. I think that's such a wonderful idea. Yeah, I mean, I think those things will run parallel, but, you know, we're young and on the wine scene and the wine production, but equally when, you know, travel restrictions lower again globally, I feel that increasingly every year, more and more people will be coming back to Canada to visit, but also to Canada as a wine travel destination in a way that it wasn't considered necessarily before. I think you're right. And I certainly hope you're right. And, you know, I've got another question here, but I think in, in some way, I'm still going to ask it, but I think in some ways we probably already, or we've at least started to address it. So here's my question. Are wine, are Canadian wines 
typecast, do you think? And the example that always comes to mind for me is one I raised with Ray, ice wine. It's the obvious example. You know, I'll be in Las Vegas, I think I said this to Ray, and looking through a phone book sized wine list, and I'll see one wine offering from Canada, and it's at the very back, and it's a 375 mil bottle of ice wine. So A, is that true? Are Canadian wines typecast? And if they are, is there a particular varietal or style of Canadian wine that you'd love to see get more attention than it's currently getting? Yeah, historically, I think we were known only or mainly for ice wine, if that, you know, I remember traveling abroad and living abroad for many years, and I'd get asked, Canada, you make wine or Oh, yeah, I hear you make really great ice wine. But that's, that's changed because it started to go to Oh, yeah, we hear you make some really nice kind of cool climate wines, but we haven't seen any. What are they like? So that's in days past. And 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 I think there that's there's still some of that thinking out there, of course, for lots of reasons. But as I mentioned before, just with different platforms for international recognition, we're getting noticed for the other styles of wine we're making. We still make fantastic ice wine, and really not many countries in the world do that. So it is an exciting thing we can do. But, you know, back to your question in terms of, you know, is there a variety or a style that I'd like to see us get more attention? Well, I would say that in general terms, I think it makes sense for us to focus on what our various Canadian terroir give us. So for the most part, this means cool climate. It's cool to be cool, you know, and the ability to showcase our the natural fresh acidity and the vibrancy of the grapes that we can grow here. Um, I just, so- I just, I, just sorry, I, I, I do want to hear more on this, but I just have to pause to note that we're having this discussion on cool climate wine during this horrible heat wave. <laughs> well, you know what? Right now, people are hitting the white wine and the rosé. Yes, you know, you are right. Yes, cool yes. It's cool um, to be cool. I'm going to do that immediately <laughs> after this interview. <laughs> um, so getting back to cool climate wines. And again, remember, that's within the context, because again, speaking about British Columbia, but this is more broadly about Canada. You know, we also have desert here. You know, you're heading to the desert pretty soon. <laughs> yes, I am. Thirties heading 40 degrees centigrade, right? So it's hot there. But, you know, looking at Canada on the wine world map, we're in, you know, the northern part of, you know, on the globe of winemaking areas. So in general terms, wines like sparkling wines, Pinot Gris, Riesling. Yes, Ray, Riesling rocks. I love Riesling. Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Merlot. And increasingly, Saran Cabernet Franc are are really showing their stuff here. We make a lot of other wines. You know, we're still a young wine region in Canada. We're experimenting with all sorts of styles and grapes. Albarino, Gruner, Veltliner, Malbec, anyone, just to name a few. We have such a diversity of terroir. But, you know, going back to the ones that work really well in our climate, keep, keep an eye on those. But note, because of this diversity of our terroir, you know, the wines we showcase may not end up, we're focusing on, may not end up being just one flagship white and one flagship red, like how we think about things in the context of other regions, for example, you know, Oregon, oh, Pinot Noir, or Napa Valley, Cabernet Sauvignon. Those are changing there too. You know, our story might become more about diversity within a landscape of huge range of terroir and climates. I mean, just even here in BC, let alone the rest of Canada. So, you know, maybe it will be more along the lines where Australia is right now, which is, wow, look at that huge nation celebrating very distinct wine regions, which are producing excellent and diverse wine styles. 
time will tell, but I'm really excited to see how it's going to unfold. Agreed. Yeah, I can't wait to see what the Hmm, what uh, reputation perception is years from now and mm. and I, th- I, th- I think you're right it really could be the diversity of what we can produce here both within bc and across the country you're, you're also right i may be the typical consumer because as soon as you say oregon i say pinot noir and as soon as you say <laughs> napa i say capsule remember that's been brilliant you know that's making brilliant wines and brilliant marketing too right sure so. sure this this point that you've touched on a little bit so far, Tanya, about uh, wines from other provinces, this is, uh, and every Canadian, I'm sure, of uh, legal age has had some complaints about the system as they go and visit other provinces and perhaps enjoy wines there. Are we as Canadians ourselves missing out on Canadian wines? You know, I, I'm getting to know more and more wines from British Columbia, but my knowledge of Ontario wines, um, the Maritimes, other places in Canada, it's really pretty limited. So can we be doing more to be enjoying more Canadian wines ourselves as Canadians. Yeah, I'm with you, Graham. I mean, I feel that I'm missing out and we're missing out. I would love to be able to try more wine from other parts of Canada. Speaking back about Australia, I hope that one day we have a similar reality from a consumer perspective. And that is, for example, I can walk into a wine store or a wine bar here in Vancouver and readily buy wine from all parts of Canada. And that someone in, for example, Toronto, Montreal, Halifax, or anywhere else in Canada can do the same. I believe that open markets and competition are really needed for growth, innovation, increased quality and collaboration, no matter what that business or the product is. But as you know, we still have a complex regulatory matrix which governs our interprovincial trade of wine and which restricts many of us from ordering wine directly from number of Canadian wineries. Now, that's a whole bottle's worth discussion in another hour. I'd like a bottle for that discussion, but, you know, I commend, <laughs> um, it's uh, close to my heart, but I commend yeah. to refer your listeners here to your episode 48, Alcohol and Advocacy with your friend Dan Coles. I think that's a fantastic discussion about the background of a lot of those issues and really informative. So rather than and try and summarize what you guys had a fantastic conversation as I'll leave it I'll leave it with that we'll, we'll um, there. at least for now I, I suspect I'll I, the bottle and listen again um, yeah <laughs> but you know I guess in the meantime you know what what do we do well while we or I I'll speak for me hope that you know these internal trade barrier barriers that we have still in within our country come down soon you know I, I still want to stick to one of my own m- mottos always be tasting. There are new wines and new winery businesses popping up all of the time around us. You know, support local, keep exploring what you can get your hands on internally in Canada. But also, I feel it's important to taste around the world too. You know, I like to keep exploring wines and styles from different regions. Our worlds and our minds and our palates can be open through travel. And this is one of my favorite ways to fly. So that's the way I'm taking it. <laughs> I think that's, that is the best possible spin on a what remains a frustrating issue. I'm with you. Oh, I'd rather be laughing than yes, crying. <laughs> absolutely. I think that's the best. For now, that is the best way to handle it. Uh, Sonia, thank you once again for joining me uh, here on Cheftimony. Thanks for being here. And until our next sidebar. Thank you so much, Graham. It's been great to chat. I always love our conversations and I am looking forward to our next sidebar as well. Cheers. Cheers. 
Now that, of course, was my good friend Tanya Tomaszewska, who is my go-to resource on all things wine. Tanya is a former banking lawyer turned wine explorer, and you can follow along with her adventures at ttwinecouncil.com, and of course on Instagram, there you will find her at ttwineexplorer. You can also hear more from Tanya on episode 35 of Cheftimony, where she was my guest for a full show, and on episode 47, where Tanya joined me for our first sidebar to talk about the Wine Islands region of British Columbia. Tanya, thank you so much for joining me once again. As always, I learned a whole lot, and I can't wait until our next sidebar. My thanks to Ray DeLucci as well. Ray, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Cheftimony, and I'm looking forward to keeping up with all of the great content that you're putting out at Line Cook Thoughts. Thank you for doing that. And hey, thanks to you too for being here. I'm really glad that you've joined me for this episode of Cheftimony. If you'd like to connect, please do. Please feel free to get in touch with me directly. Perhaps you've got a question or a comment for the show or maybe a guest suggestion or a topic idea. Do get in touch. You can find me on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You'll find me at Cheftimony. On LinkedIn, you'll find me under my name, Graham McLennan. And of course, you can always send me the good old-fashioned email, and those go to graham at cheftimony.com. Okay, that is all for episode 54 of the show. Thank you for being here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I will see you two Fridays from now, right here on Cheftimony. <laughs>